Hello, everyone, all over this wonderful world. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another humble offering from the CHP. This episode was first produced in early 2018 and ran for a few years. It was one of my most popular videos on my YouTube channel. And since uploading this one, I received so many nice comments and emails from Hoysanese around the world. A couple inaccuracies were kindly and generously pointed out to me by some of my listeners, one of which concerned my pronunciation of the word Toisan. Toisan is my poorly pronounced Cantonese of the Mandarin Taishan. The Toisan people in their dialect used an H instead of a T and called themselves in their ancestral homeland Hoisan. Ever since being schooled in this, I've been meaning to go back and tidy this one up, which I'm doing right now. And I figured, well, while I'm at it, I may as well freshen this episode up a little and add a few more interesting tidbits regarding the story. In past CHP episodes, we looked at the history of the Diochus and the Hakas, two ancient groups of Chinese who migrated from the northern and central parts of China to the south, setting themselves up in an area where Guangdong and Fujian provinces come together on the south coast of China. In the case of the Hakkas, they spread themselves out to several other provinces in southern China. Our focus today will be another one of the major groups of Chinese who, like the Hakkas, Diochus, and Hokkien, and others, made their mark among the Chinese diaspora. And these were the people from Hoisan. In this episode, I wanted to both introduce the land where the Hoisan people came from, a bit of their history, and then I thought we'd turn our attention to the experience of the Hoisan people in America. Since most of the early Chinese-American history was written by them, well, why not go back to those years from the 1860s, 70s, clear through to the 20th century, and look at a few stories of the Hoisan people that have taught us a lot about who we are as an imperfect nation committed to the notion of continuous improvement. Of all the books and stories written about the Hoisan Chinese immigration experience in the United States, I'll never forget one article in particular that will always stand out. This was William Poi Lee's unforgettable piece from the now-shuttered but never-forgotten Anthill.org, formerly curated by the likable and brilliant Alec Ash, and the piece was called Talkin' Toysanese, and I'll put a link to that on my website. William Poi Lee gave a beautiful intro to the people of Hoisan and their no-nonsense dialect. A lot of stories like that would have been written over the years about the personal and family histories of immigrants from Hoisan. That really crystallized the whole experience of what it means to be part of that great heritage. The Chinese who first sailed to America in the mid-19th century, they mostly came from Guangdong province, and overwhelmingly... Those who came from Guangdong came from any one of four counties that made up this general area that we'll look at today. You know, from the times of the gold rush and the transcontinental railroad, all through the Chinese exclusion years, and well, pretty much all the way up to the Kennedy assassination, eight out of every ten Chinese walking around the United States came from or traced their ancestry back to this four-county region, of which Hoisan has become sort of the county that defined the whole place. There's somewhere around 
half a million Chinese Americans today who can trace their ancestral roots back to the villages that make up the whole Hoisan region. That's about 35 to 40% of the total worldwide Hoisan population. Although today I'm only focusing on the Hoisan in America, they've emigrated to every continent except Antarctica. As far as all the Chinatowns of America, coast to coast, up until the signing of the Immigration and Naturalization Act in 1965, the Hoisan dialect was the dominant language spoken and became the lingua franca of all southern Chinese immigrants. Even in Cholan, the Chinatown of Vietnam, Hoisan was what you'd most likely hear spoken on the streets. That and Chujonese, of course. The Hoisan dialect, despite its proximity to Canton or Guangzhou, is not the same as Cantonese. After 1965, when the Golden Door was reopened to any Chinese immigrant, the Hoisan percentage of the overall Chinese-American population would, over time, become diluted. Now, of course, I'm guessing Mandarin-speaking Chinese immigrants have a commanding lead in that department. Let's look at Taishan for a moment. You can get in your car and drive from Jimsajoy and Kowloon up to the Lawu border crossing, 45 minutes with no traffic, and then cross the border into China. And from that point, it's about a two-and-a-half to three-hour drive north, west, and south over and around the widest part of the Pearl River Delta. And you're there, very close to Hong Kong, right on the Pearl River Delta, on the China coast, just to the west of Macau. That was one reason why this part of China, in particular, served as the ultimate jumping-off point to begin adventures to other parts of the world. Let's take a quick look at this place. The 95 islands, inlets, and continental land that makes up Taishan are politically part of the city of Jiangmen. The population of the Taishan urban area, it's about half a million or so people. Because of its great legacy as a place of emigration, Taishan is often referred to as the first home of the overseas Chinese. Quan Guo Di Xiaoxiang. Han Chinese began migrating there sometime during the Tang Dynasty, 7th to 10th centuries. That's when the earliest people, not from those parts indigenously, came to this Hoisan or Taishan region. I've also read this first migration began in the Song. It wouldn't surprise me if it were both, between the Anlushan Rebellion and the Tang and the Jurchen invasions of the northern Song. <laughs> I'd head south to Taishan too. And William Poi Lee pointed out in his piece that, like others who migrated to the south from central China, they brought with them the language current to those times. And as it slowly evolved into the dozens and dozens of dialects down south, when you read ancient Tang poetry and the Hoisan and other dialects, it rhymed the way it probably did back in the 8th and 9th centuries. And even before all that violence descended on China... There were people already living on the lands that one day would be called Taishan. These were people who were already there when the Qin Emperor sent his soldiers down for a first look-see. This whole area later got folded into Zhao Tuo's Nanyue Kingdom that sprung up after the fall of the Qin. It was very far from the capital of China, and that far back, there wasn't a lot that I could find about its earliest history. 
From the time of the Han up to the Ming, the tiny Taishan region ended up as one unimportant part of one administrative entity or another. As far as the history of Hoisan, we could say that everything began on February 12, 1499, with the formal establishment of Xinning County. Yeah, the Ming Hongzhi Emperor decisively planted the flag there and separated this land from the existing Xinhui County. Two officials were sent down to administer these lands in the name of the Emperor. So halfway into the Ming, Hoisan, not yet called that, became a political entity in the name of Xinning. And this name will stick until 1914, when, in order to avoid any confusion with the other Xinning located in Hunan province, Xinning County was simply renamed to Taishan, and that's what it is today. And we know from so many past episodes the history of this most southern region of China didn't rise to importance until the arrival of the great trading nations of Europe and the surrounding region. During the first four decades of the Qing Dynasty, beginning in 1644, the emperor had to fight off and subdue all the Ming loyalists who kept up the fight down there for a very long time. In popular history, we mostly remember Kaxinga, Zheng Changgong, as the most famous of these Ming loyalists who tried in vain to restore a Chinese emperor to the throne and quickly do away with these Manchus who now controlled the country. The Kangxi Emperor took drastic measures and instituted the Great Clarence in 1662 that called for a mass evacuation of the China coast, including Taishan. People weren't allowed to start returning till 1669, but in the years that these coastal lands were vacated, they were destroyed by storms, typhoons, and whatever else Mother Nature could throw at them. By 1684, though, the Kangxi Emperor felt secure enough to issue the following edict that said, quote, Now the whole country is unified. Everywhere there is peace and quiet. Manchu-Han relations are fully integrated, so I command you to go abroad and trade to show the populous and affluent nature of our rule. By imperial decree, I open the seas to trade. End quote. Five ports were open to trade, and this is mostly where our story begins. China had a lot of stuff that markets around the world demanded in great quantities, mostly tea, but silk, porcelain, and other manufactures as well. And for the rest of the 1600s and into the 1700s, the foreign traders just couldn't get enough of what China had. And these coastal areas, especially in and around the new trading ports of Guangzhou, Xiamen, Ningbo, and around Shanghai, they saw spectacular economic growth that, in turn, led to all kinds of conditions. Some good for China, some not so good, as things turned out. Now, these Hoisan people, unlike the Cantonese to the east, they were not famous for being great traders and merchants. They were farmers, through and through, very similar to the traditional Hakkas in this respect. They were situated on some very fertile land, situated as it was on the river basin of one of the longest rivers in the world. And they shared this land aplenty with several other counties, namely three others. And later a fourth was added. And these place names, including Taishan, got all lumped together in the Chinese term Siyi, or Seiyap, the four counties, or as I said, later the Wuyi, the five counties. 
a yi. It's an archaic term for what we call today a xian, or a county. And these counties were Taishan, Xinhui, Kaiping, Unping, and the fifth one added to the list later on was the county of Hushan. And like I said, if you tapped any Chinese on the shoulder back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you had about an 80% chance that they came from any one of these five places. They're all right next to one another, 1,300 square miles, about the size of Rhode Island. And all five cities today are contained within the prefecture of Jiangmen. Why did so many Chinese from these parts decide to pick up and leave? There were a number of reasons. We discussed them in previous episodes, but let's quickly review them. The immediate cause was civil unrest and all the horrific blowback from the Taiping Rebellion that ran from 1850 to 1864. To add to this misery, there were other popular uprisings, famines, a massive earthquake in January 1881, followed by one of the harshest winters ever seen that far south in 1892. But it's safe to say it was the horrors of the Taiping Rebellion and all the violence that gripped southern China that perhaps mostly contributed to the exodus from Hoisan. Between 1855 and 1867, about 12 years, partly concurrent with the Taiping Rebellion, there was the Tuke Shedo, or Bunde Hakka Wars. We went over this in the History of the Hakkas episode, CHP 150. By the time this 12-year conflict between these two groups of Chinese burned itself out, over a million people died, about a half a million on each side. Between all the misery that rained down on that small corner of China in such a short time, as, as well as the events happening overseas, it led to one of the greatest overseas mass migrations in modern history. One other factor was the intense overpopulation of the region that had been brought on by all the economic prosperity that happened under the Qing emperors Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong. From 1848 to 1888, over 2 million Chinese emigrated to Taiwan, Vietnam, Burma, California, New York, Hawaii, Australia, Canada, the West Indies, Singapore, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and elsewhere. The next wave of Chinese who came later continued on to places like Cuba, Peru, and Brazil. In CHP episode 123, we looked at the Chinese who emigrated to Mexico. By 1900, a good 5 million Chinese had spread themselves out around the world. By 1922, this number would reach 8 million. 335,000 Chinese made their way to the U.S. between 1848 and 1882. That's from the start of the gold rush up to the Exclusion Act. And most of those ended up in California. In 1852 alone, 20,000 Chinese entered the U.S. in San Francisco. Starting in 1867 with the construction of the Central Pacific Railroad, 40,000 laborers from Guangdong would make the Trans-Pacific Voyage over the next few years. By 1877, 148,000 Chinese called the U.S. home, or at least a home away from home. The name of the game was to escape the chaos and brutality of the times on the south coast of China, take advantage of Taishan's proximity to the sea, and try one's luck in any number of locations around the world where things were popping. The 1849 gold rush in California was one such thing. 
and of course the construction of the railroads. The shared idea that all these Hoisan farmers had was to head to these overseas destinations, work hard, sacrifice, earn as much money as possible, and with that small fortune in hand, head back to their village and set themselves and their family up for life. Most did not plan on staying long, just long enough to make it. I wanted the focus of this episode, however, to be on those whose plan was to work hard, sacrifice, earn as much money as possible, and with that nest egg in hand, plant some seeds, start a business, and begin building a life in America. Plenty of immigrants from Hoisan ended up coming on a round-trip ticket. That was the plan for most, I think. But a lot of them decided to stay. And the stories we've read, or that Hoisanese heard from aging relatives, mostly were stories of the people who came from this five-county area, sitting at the southern geographic bottom of China. So again, people from this five-county area made up the most numerous group among the Chinese-American immigrant community. And of this community, there's more than a few, past and present, who went on to fame, fortune, great achievements, or all three. We covered Anna Mae Wong in CHP episode 159. She was Hoisan. The great actor James Hong, still going strong at the age of 92 as I record this, also Hoisan. The late great cinematographer James Wong Hao and artist Tyrus Wong, Hoisan. Former Ambassador Gary Locke, New York City Council Rep from Chinatown Margaret Chin, the late Mayor of San Francisco Ed Lee, and former California Secretary of State March Fong Yu, and by extension, former California Treasurer Matt Fong, all Hoisan. Dr. Patrick Sun Xiong, Huang Xinxiang, the billionaire inventor of proton nanotechnology and owner of the LA Times, Hoisan. That's just skimming off the top. Adrian Clarkson, former governor of Canada, Wu Bingzhi, her father was from Hoisan. Her mother was of Hakka origins. Prominent historical figures from China who hailed from these five counties, Liang Qi Chao and Wu Tingfang. Some of the best stories, though, don't involve any of these personas famosas I just rattled off. There was a book that came out in 2012 by one of my favorite authors and a good friend, Mr. Scott Seligman. Like previous titles I've featured in the CHP, this one also came out on Earnshaw Books, as good a place as any for books on China and beyond. Scott Seligman's book was called Three Tough Chinamen. It was all about three brothers, all from Hoisan, who lived during these worst of times when calling someone a Chinaman, or worse, it was perfectly normal in everyday American society and often printed in all the media of the day. This is the story about the three Moi brothers from Haiyang Village in Taishan, which, as I explained, was still called Xinning County. The village was part of Duanfun Township, still there today, of course. If you look at that speck of land on a satellite view on Google Maps... It looks as rural and bucolic as any other village in the world where people made their living pulling a plow and always praying for rain or for the rain to stop. And surrounding Haiyang Village 
are nothing but a bunch of other villages with names like Yongxing, Haitangli, Xiyuan, and Gaoyuan. From a few thousand feet up, you can't tell one from the other. The Moys traced their clan to these parts since about the 1300s, 1371 to be exact. Yeah, they traced their ancestry from somewhere in Anhui province. And they came to this land right as Zhu Yuanzhang was getting the Ming dynasty all set up. But as far as the earliest Chinese-American immigration goes, it was from these farms, located in Taishan, Anping, Kaiping, and Xinhui. It was from this agricultural paradise that most people came from. And these were the mostly forgotten Hoysanese who, willingly or unwillingly, or completely unbeknownst to them, provided all the fine print about the earliest history of Chinese immigration in the U.S. Overwhelmingly, most of these stories were lost to the ages, never written down, taken back to their village in Hoysan, and the stories lived on through oral tradition, or they didn't. But a lot of the stories remained intact, forgotten though they may have been for so many decades. Scott Seligman dug up this story, interestingly enough, while researching something else on a cousin of these three Moy brothers from Hoisan. In my previous episode, CHP 136, we examined the life and times of Wong Chin Fu, someone who immigrated to this country, never planned on leaving, and in the course of living his short life, ended up being one of the great unsung heroes of the Chinese exclusion years. The Moy brothers, Jin Ke, Jin Moon, and Jin Fui, unless you read Scott Seligman's book, I'm doubtful you know who they were. He used the adjective tough to explain them. Moy Jin Ke, or Mei Chun Ji in Mandarin, was born in 1847, during the Qing Chao Mo Nian, the four syllables that evoke the sad and humiliating final decades of the Qing dynasty. He came to America as a 12-year-old accompanying an uncle in 1859, ten years into the gold rush. And over in China, eight years into the Taiping Rebellion and four years into the Bunte Hakka Wars. Yeah, that was a good time to get out of Taishan. It took eight weeks to cross the Pacific Ocean and make the voyage from Hong Kong to San Francisco. Steamships can do it in four weeks, but those were still new and yeah, sort of like the Concords of their day. And, and the common folk didn't like to pony up for that kind of an extravagance. Four extra weeks and a cramped, smelly hold of a ship to save a few bucks. Eh, wasn't no thing to most of these poor farmers. Although the nasty stuff was still a decade or two in the future. When Moi Chin Ke arrived, there was already this pervasive public opinion that was starting to say... Enough Chinese had already been let in the door already, and it was time to think about closing it. When Moi Jin Ke arrived in the U.S., San Francisco had a total population of just under 60,000. And of that 60K, 4.5%, or 2,700, were Chinese. But he didn't stay too long in San Francisco. Younger brother Jin Moon, born in 1851, also made the trip over to Gold Mountain as a child. And when older brother Chin Ke left for Sacramento in 1864 to seek out potential opportunities, he left young Chin Moon in the care of a family who ensured the young'un received a Western education and became fluent in English. Not every immigrant from China got this lucky, but Moi Chin Ke, 
thanks in part to his fluent English, and also in part because well, having Chinese servants in your household was quite fashionable in those days, he ended up employed by the first Republican governor of California, Leland Stanford. Yes, Stanford University, that guy. Jin Gay worked out of the Stanford mansion, still there today at 8th and N Streets in Sacramento, the state capital, and he worked hard as a cook, and the Stanfords kindly saw to his education. A year and a half later, after younger brother Jin Moon, now 15 years old, and most of his rough edges polished away in San Francisco, he too was given employment at the Stanford mansion as a gardener. Stanford only served one term as governor before he took on the position of president of the Central Pacific Railroad, a.k.a. the western portion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Yeah, the governor of California, who, by the way, uh, may have been nothing except caring and devoted to Jin Kei and later to Jin Moon, but Leland Stanford was not a friend of the Chinese-American population as a whole and saw them more as a good source of low-cost labor for the Central Pacific Railroad more than anything else. He once said, on the record, I might add, quote, Asia, with her numberless millions, sends to our shores the dregs of her population. There could be no doubt that the presence of numbers of that degraded and distinct people could exercise a deleterious effect upon the superior race, end quote. Once the railroads were all built and Mr. Leland Stanford himself drove that 17.6-carat golden spike into the ground on May 10, 1869 at Promontory Point in the Utah Territory, he was all for kicking the Chinese out of the country. Working for Leland Stanford had its perks. When Jin Gay and Jin Moon left his employ in 1870 to seek opportunities elsewhere, they left a lot smarter, a lot more fluent in English, and with Excellent references to present, if needed. Jin Moon went on to try his luck in the gold mines. He was a bottom feeder. He'd prospect in all the gold mines that had already been picked clean and shuttered. He'd go down into the tunnels and mine for whatever crumbs still remained. He didn't get rich, but scraped enough gold dust out of those abandoned mines to buy a ticket back to Hoisan and get married. Jin Kei accompanied his younger brother, and in a familiar ritual carried out by who knows how many Chinese men who came to the U.S., they boarded their vessel in San Francisco, loaded up with gifts and whatever trappings of conspicuous success they could display in front of their relatives, and they took the long voyage to Hong Kong. Then from there, they'd take a ferry just a little bit further to familiar territory. And for some, the adventure ended right there. But not for the Moy brothers. They knew they were going to go back to Gold Mountain. They saw long-term opportunities in the U.S. and had no intention of staying in rural Hoisan. They had a much different experience in America than the average farmer who spent a hard-scrabble decade mining for gold, blasting tunnels, and laying down tracks. Those laborers never saw the governor's mansion, let alone slept inside of it. So the Moy brothers, being traditional Chinese and all, went home, and both of them got married to local Hoisan girls. And Jin Kei had a no-nonce traditional wedding. He met his wife, Jin Fong, on his wedding day. They stayed in the village for a couple of years before Jin Kei and his wife headed back to Cali. This time, youngest brother Jin Fui took his first voyage to America. 
Quite a life awaiting him once he got there. February 1875, Mr. and Mrs. Moichin Kei and Moichin Fui arrived in the States. They stayed in California for the first few years. Chinese exclusion still hadn't happened yet, but if you were Chinese, you felt it in the air. Youngest brother Jin Fui had similar luck to Jin Kei. He, too, met his own version of Leland Stanford. This came in the form of one George Washington Reed, publisher of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. As fate would have it, he was in California on business, and his path crossed with 12-year-old Jin Fui, who, with older brother Jin Kei's blessing, accompanied Reed back to New York as a servant, and Reed would see to the young man's education and Christian upbringing. New York didn't have as many Chinese as were found on the West Coast. When Jin Fui showed up, their numbers were in the hundreds, in the whole state. By 1880, there were still fewer than 1,200, all concentrated in Lower Manhattan. The Five Points neighborhood was where everything was starting to coalesce. That's the present-day location of New York Chinatown. Jin Kei converted to Christianity in 1878 and attended a Methodist mission school in San Francisco before heading out to New York to join Jin Fui. Through Jin Fui's employer at the paper, Mr. Reed, Jin Kei got a job working for someone who owned an import firm that sold goods of Japanese and Chinese origin. He had also started attending a seminary and began to preach amongst the Chinese. Jin Kei, with the backing of the Methodists running the Five Points Mission in Chinatown, opened a Sunday school there that was open to any of the thousand or so residents of that small area. And it was set up on the second floor of 14 Mott Street, where the Ajisan Ramen Shop is today. And there, Moi Jin Kei taught the Bible to Chinese converts and potential converts. Chinese exclusion happened in 1882, but as I said, the decade leading up to the actual moment was excruciating. Fortunately, amidst all this heat that the budding Chinese-American community was dealing with, they had plenty of supporters. First of all, the missionaries threw their full support behind the Chinese. They saw the Chinese immigrants as a valuable conduit to a very big market of potential converts, and, and they didn't want this supply chain broken. So they spoke out using all available channels in those days, namely print journalism. Let me quote the great abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who, in his final months of life in 1879, wrote that, quote, It is difficult to decide in this case which is the greater, its absurdity or its injustice. We have allowed all other peoples to take up their abode with us, notwithstanding their ignorance, destitution, unfortunate training, and difference of race. And they have come by the millions, Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotchmen, Frenchmen, Germans, Scandinavians, Italians, Africans, etc., etc. We must either drive out these or prevent any more of them seeking refuge here or keep the barrier down and let the Chinese find an equal entrance and be protected in the enjoyment of equal rights and privileges, end quote. The other fly in the ointment to the anti-Chinese politicians were the trade lobby, because as far as they were concerned, as long as there wasn't even the slightest negative ripple effect to business as usual, they looked the other way. The Democrats, the GOP... The matter of Chinese immigration was a gift to both parties starting in the 1870s, especially after the Panic of 1873. These were very, 
tough times in the beautiful country. People were out of work, their savings and investments wiped out, and conveniently enough, there were the Chinese immigrants, small though their numbers still may have been, but there they were to point to and snare at, and the op-eds and the papers, coast to coast, would print words that essentially declared, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have these problems. The Chinese must go. Dennis Kearney's famous slogan from his Working Man's Party. Everyone knew that one. Congress passed these acts. Everyone saw where it was ultimately heading. The 1875 Page Act said no more Chinese laborers or sex workers welcome. And since any Chinese woman was viewed suspiciously as a sex worker, the Page Act ended up being a huge obstacle to anyone trying to get their wife to join them. Then in 1879, a law passed that said no vessels will be granted entry if carrying more than 15 Chinese. Those who were intimately connected to this situation wondered eh, what was next. The only Chinese living in America who could breathe easy while all this was going on around them were merchants, diplomats, teachers, students, or those born in the USA, the first ABCs, and even them. They got the cheap labor treatment sometimes as well. Moi Jin Gay, eh, he wasn't the smartest guy in the room, but he had received an education and he used the power of his fluency in English to begin to stand up and fight back. Again, CHP episode 136, Wong Chin Fu, he too was another prominent voice in the crowd at that time. Scott Seligman wrote about Wong's life in his book, The First Chinese American. Moi Jin had become somewhat of a local character in the New York Chinatown community. And because his English was so good, the news reporters would always go to him for a quote. He had said in the New York Tribune, quote, We expected more from this country than any other because it was a nation of freemen. But we have gotten less. The treatment we have received here has been shameful. And if the good people of the United States could only realize how we have been hunted and hounded about, our property taken from us by force, our poor homes burned over our heads, and we stoned and driven from place to place, subject to jibes and insults of every loafer of an Irish fellow citizen. I am sure we would not have been so misrepresented by Mr. Blaine and others, and would find greater protection than we now receive. The Chinamen are patient, and they bear a great deal, but they cannot bear everything. End quote. Being quoted in the New York Trib gave Jin Gay a bit of shine, and while he didn't become the face of anti-Chinese treatment, his voice was added to the many others from coast to coast who tried to speak out in defense of the accusations made in the prints with their downright vile and preposterous allegations. The Mr. Blaine he refers to was the Republican Senator James G. Blaine from Maine, who became one of the loudest anti-Chinese voices in the country. He was running for president in the 1880 election, so the matter of keeping Chinese out of America was his uh, border wall, so to speak. Well, we covered this before, but the way things turned out, after the Senate bill calling for Chinese exclusion passed and went to the White House, President Rutherford B. Hayes vetoed it because he thought it was too unilateral and didn't offer any chance of compromise. But once he left office and James A. Garfield became president, he called for more discussion on the matter and to find a more 
amicable settlement. Then Garfield got shot and killed, the second U.S. president to meet that fate. And his successor, Chester Allen Arthur, he signed the Chinese Exclusion Act into law on May 6, 1882. And Moi Chin the rising star in the New York Chinatown Methodist community, his career in the ministry was cut short after he got caught stealing merchandise from his boss at the import firm. He got thrown into a cell in the tombs, Lower Manhattan Jail, conveniently located right near Chinatown. Well, Jin Kei got himself bailed out thanks to his influential friends, but this larceny charge cut short his career and soiled his name pretty badly. Those who looked at Jin Kei as a reliable and dependable link to the Chinese community distanced themselves. He was finished in Chinatown, at least for now. Jin Kei, therefore, decided in the late summer of 1880 to cool his heels for a while back in the old country. But before he booked passage back to Hoisan, he filed a declaration of intention to become a U.S. citizen, step one in the naturalization process. Then Jin Kei and his wife, Jin Feng, went back to their village in Hoisan and remained there for three years. Despite Jin Kei's bad fortune, younger brother Jin Fui's rise in the Methodist Church continued. He was being groomed to become one of those American-trained missionaries who would return to China and preach to the masses. He did well with his benefactors among the Methodists, who financed his further education, including his medical degree, conferred in 1890. Yeah, this youngest brother later on went on to become one of the earliest Chinese doctors of Western medicine in the U.S., Jin Fui was turning into the model Chinese immigrant, beloved and respected within the Methodist organization, with his perfect English, education. Everyone pointed to Moi Jin Fui as a good Chinese. But then he went and threw it all away, upsetting polite society by marrying a Caucasian woman, Hattie Alice Dalbo, 19 years old. Hey, they met, they fell in love, and everything after that just came natural. They married on April 3rd, 1889. No big deal in our day, of course, but 132 years ago, Asians and Caucasians weren't supposed to even be intimate, let alone get married. So that put the kibosh on Jin Fui's career as a rising star in the church and the missionary community. After trying out a few luckless ventures, Jin Fui was given the chance to work at a new med center in Brooklyn that sought to serve the Chinese immigrant population. But back then, the number of Chinese willing to try Western medicine in favor of the old tried-and-true traditional Chinese version was very small. But he bounced around from one thing to the next and was able to support his wife and their newly adopted daughter, Josephine. More about her later. Middle brother, Moi Chin Moon, in the meantime, ended up thriving in California, leaving the mines to work for the state as an interpreter, serving the courts and the local governments. Chin Moon, and others like him, who worked for the man, well, just as with other immigrant groups, he landed in hot water more than a few times with the Chinese community, who saw him in carrying out his job as working against their interests, and he was viewed with a justifiable amount of suspicion. They saw him as a likely stool pigeon to the authorities. Jin Fui, too, ended up working for the government and, like his brother, would have to face down his fellow Chinese Americans who saw his cooperation with the authorities as a a kind of a betrayal. Yeah, these three brothers faced all kinds of obstacles to 
making their American dream happen. Sometimes it was their own fault, the consequences of poor decisions, and sometimes because that's just the way it was for them. Asian immigrants, of all the races mixing about in America, they were the last ones to the party. America, by the actions of the U.S. government and the attitude of the unwashed masses, coast to coast, they weren't sure yet if there was room enough inside this blessed land of plenty for Asian people. The laws being passed, the political rhetoric, and all the disparaging stories printed in the media. You had to really want to be an American to face down all that and keep on keeping on. Jin Ke left Hoisan and sailed back to the States towards the end of the year 1883. The Exclusion Act was now law, and the scrutiny he faced when it was his turn to stand before the guy manning the immigration window was borderline unbearable. Fortunately, his papers were in order, and he had already filed for citizenship, but just the same. Let's just say the uh, welcome mat was not rolled out for Jin Ke or most everyone else from Hoi San or anywhere in China. Jin Ke tried his luck out east again, opening up a small business in Newark, New Jersey. Today, eh, there's about 750,000 Chinese Americans in the Newark, Jersey City, New York, Tri-City area. But back in Jin Ke's day, a lot less, especially once you left New York Chinatown. Jin Ke tried, but for these typical Chinese-run, dry goods, laundry, boarding house places that were the favorite businesses of Chinese immigrants, eh, Newark wasn't the place yet. Not enough Chinese. So in 1886, Jin Ke moved further west to my hometown, Chicago, Illinois. The Chinese community there was already two decades old and had a population of just under 200. And Jin Ke was no doubt pleased to see that when he and his missus arrived in the Windy City, there were more than three dozen Moys already living there. By the 1890s, a Moy family association, the Meishir Gongsuo, had been established. This was an excellent network for Moi Jin Ke to fall into, and in no time at all, he had started a few businesses and was making money hand over fist and had risen to become one of the pillars of the Chinese community there. He got into the laundry biz, opened up a tea shop, and fully engaged with the Windy City's Chinese community. If you recall from that three-part series on the Tong Wars in New York City, Scott Seligman's other book came in handy for that, well, these Chinatown gang wars didn't just happen in the Big Apple. Plenty of blood flowed in other places, most notably, of course, in San Francisco and L.A., and in Chicago. And Moi Chin Ke, he wasn't a gangster or anything, but the Tongs were a fact of life, and he often found himself in the middle of these turf wars and other potentially violent situations. With his fluency in English and his general gift for the gab, Jin Ke, like before in New York, became the one who the reporters flocked to for a halfway decent quote. With Chinese exclusion, now the law of the land, there were plenty of outspoken voices that got to be heard in the papers. Moi Jin Ke was one of them. The Chinese Exclusion Act was bad enough, but when the Gary Act was passed in 1892, well, that added 10 more years to the Exclusion Act, and that was the final straw. Now, the whole matter of Chinese fighting back against the hypocrisy of this law really hit a full boil. 
1897, after having a bit of trouble with the Chicago Chinese community, Jin Ge moved next to Indianapolis, of all places. Chinese had been coming to the U.S. for half a century now and had spread out to more than just the usual suspects. Just the same, there were all of perhaps 30 Chinese there when Jin Ge and wife joined the community. And that same year, Jin Ge received his citizenship papers. He really stepped up his outspokenness on the Chinese exclusion issue. He became more and more high profile, and with the help of his congressman in Indiana, even got as far as meeting President Teddy Roosevelt on February 1st, 1906. He was a familiar voice in the press. There were many others, most of them forgotten, unfortunately, who became national voices that eloquently spoke out against the more obvious outrages and injustices of the exclusion laws. T.R., as president, wasn't exactly a champion of these anti-Chinese laws, but he spoke out against the mistreatment that Chinese had to suffer through. I want to take a short break from our story to mention another Chinese-American who was more well-known than Moi Chin Kei and who enjoyed a better reputation as well. He, too, came from Hoisan. In Mandarin, his name was Wu Pan Chao. But if you googled that name, nothing would come up. He was best known by his Cantonese name of Ng Pun Chu. He came later than the Moy brothers, immigrating in 1881. He began his American dream as a humble houseboy in San Jose. He was a deeply religious man all his life and ended up studying for the ministry in San Francisco, graduating in 1892. Ng Pun Chu went on to become the first ordained Chinese Presbyterian minister on the West Coast. He carried out his teaching and preaching in both L.A. and San Francisco Chinese Presbyterian churches. And after passing the Gary Act, Ng Pun Chu stood up and railed against these laws. He founded a newspaper that was later renamed the Zhongxi Bao, the Zhongsai Yatbo. That became one of his several platforms where he and others advocated for fairer treatment of Chinese. He was extremely articulate as a speaker, and if you query him on YouTube... There's even a video of him giving a speech. Spoke English without an accent. That made a huge difference. Most Chinese who had to eat you-know-what during the worst of the exclusion years suffered in humiliating silence due to their inability to fight back. Anyone who tried in vain to vent their feelings using their accented, broken English would find themselves further mocked and disparaged. Their point was ignored, and their mangled, Chinese-accented delivery became the butt of the whole joke. But not with guys like Mpun Chu. And as I mentioned in that CHP 136 episode, Wong Chin Fu, and to a lesser extent Moi Chin Gay as well, and many others, they were able to give as good as they got. You know, when African Americans were fighting for rights that were due to them as citizens, they also had people who led the charge. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, W.E.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King, of course, the most famous, Jesse Jackson, John Lewis. The Chinese had their own versions of these fighters for justice and civil rights. They didn't become as well-known, but there was a whole army out there, small as it may have been in comparison, but Ng Pun Chu, Wong Chin Fu, and many other unsung heroes rose to the fore in those dark times. Ng Pun Chu in 1906 went on a national speaking tour where he sought to educate people about China. 
He spoke everywhere in any kind of forum, even addressing the U.S. House of Representatives. He, too, got to meet Teddy Roosevelt. And from his tireless efforts in his day, he went on to become not just a heroic son of Hoisan, but another of the public faces in America who spoke out against Chinese exclusion. He used his eloquence to educate people and win their support. He was known as the Chinese Mark Twain for his often folksy and common-sense delivery. He operated on a national stage and remained plugged into events in China as well, serving as a U.S. representative to the Qing government and later on as one of Sun Yat-sen's main fundraisers in the States. Ng Pun Chu ended up being a major philanthropist and, aside from being a Freemason, was also the first Chinese to become a Shriner. You know, the guys who wear the red fezes, support hospitals, and remain a fraternity based on fun, fellowship, and the Masonic principles of brotherly love, relief, and truth. He co-authored a book in 1905 called A Statement for Non-Exclusion that laid everything out eloquently and methodically, offering some background on Chinese civilization, as well as a point-by-point deconstruction of the whole case against Chinese exclusion. You can download it from archive.org. Ng Pun Chu used his newspapers as his platform to speak out and get the Chinese-American side of the story popularized. Back in those days, today's rights and privileges were yesterday's battleground hot-button issues. Like I said, those like Ng Pun Chu, who had a voice thanks to their mastery of English, they fought in the trenches for all those years and, well... As long as we were shining the spotlight today on the Hoisan immigrants in America, I wanted to mention Ng Pun Chu. He and others like him, Hoisan, and not from there, should be a little more well-known than they are. And my longtime CHP listener and Patreon patron and frequent commenter on my YouTube channel and a Jungwa Tong to boot, Michael in Titusville, Florida, he once suggested the life of another great Hoisan Chinese immigrant named Qin Ji Hei in Mandarin, that's Chen Yi Xi, as a CHP topic. So let me just quickly mention him here. Qin Ji Hei was one of the legendary greats who emigrated here from Hoisan and called Seattle, Washington his home. In fact, he was a friend of the uh, Suquamish Native American tribe up there and knew the family of Chief Seattle, from which that great city gets its name. Chin was one of the earliest arrivals up there in the Washington Territory, and his son was the first Chinese to be born up there. He was a tireless entrepreneur involved in a whole slew of ventures. As a businessman, he's most remembered for his work in supplying Chinese laborers for the Northern Pacific Railway and for other rail projects. But it was his role as a leading voice in the defense of anti-Chinese sentiment in the Northwest that we most remember him today. Like Ng Pun Chu and Wong Chin Fu, he spoke out against the violence and injustice meted out against Chinese Americans. Around the same time as the Rock Springs Massacre on September 2nd, 1885 in Wyoming, another incident went down just east of Seattle in Squawk Valley, where Issaquah is today. That saw three Chinese workers murdered and three wounded. Besides his work as a crusader for the oppressed Chinese-American community in the Washington Territory, Chin Ji Hei is also remembered as the financier who built the first railway in southern China, the Sunning Railway. 
If you remember, before Taishan was called Taishan, it was called Xinning County. So Sunning is just the Cantonese of Xinning. Anyway, back to the Moys. Moi Jin Gei's rise in prominence wasn't as illustrious as Ng Pun Chu's or Qin Ji Hei in 1906. He got caught up in a scandal that pretty much negated all the honors and face he had accrued since moving to Indianapolis. By October 1907, one by one, all his honors heaped on him by Chinese organizations and local communities were taken away. And once again, given the state of affairs and his much reduced personal circumstances, Jin Kei bought a ticket and went back to Hoisan. One of the highlights of the Chinese exclusion laws was the difficulty of getting back into the U.S. after you returned to China for a visit. People just wouldn't leave for fear of never being able to return. The stories are legion about the way Chinese were just put through a gauntlet of ringers just to make it to the other side. So Jin Gei made sure to fill out the form called the Statement of Registered Chinese Laborer About to Depart from the United States with the Intention of Returning Thereto. Just another form. Had to make sure you filled that one out and got the right chops and seals. Jin Gei indeed returned thereto in March 1909. And I will let Scott Seligman give you all the gory details in his book, but... Even with all his papers in order, not to mention his bona fides, Moi Chin Kei still got hassled when he tried to get back into the beautiful country. A couple years later, Chin Kei found out Uncle Sam had a target on his back, and they were trying to revoke his citizenship based on a bunch of technicalities that, well, technically speaking, weren't completely out of line. To support his application for citizenship, let's just say Chin Kei had to swear to a few things that weren't entirely true or lawful. Despite putting up a fight and having solid support from the Indianapolis Chinese community, the government revoked Moi Chin Gei's citizenship October 18, 1911, eight days after the Wuchang uprising and 18 years after his naturalization. Moi Chin Gei planned to fight this to the end, but it wasn't meant to be. He dropped dead from a heart attack the following year whilst dining at a restaurant in Indianapolis, January 6, 1912. A few weeks later, he made his final journey back to Hoisan with his wife, Jin Fong, accompanying his remains. His American dream, like so many of his Hoisan brethren, ending in heartbreak. Moi Jin Moon, the second brother, he went on to have Quite an interesting story. Like his brothers, Jin Kei and Jin Fui, he had his ups and downs. He came to America in 1861 when he was 10 years old and had done it all as far as the typical Chinese immigrant experience. He too got caught up in scandals, mostly because he wasn't trusted by his community because of his close association with the government. But he did later go on to become the president of the six companies. I mentioned them previously. This was the a San Francisco-based umbrella organization that ran the six regions of the U.S. where all the Chinese were mostly spread out. The six companies later on became the CCBA, the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association. Still around today. I'm going to do an episode on them next year. Jin Moon was president from 1916 to 1917. Anyway, Moi Jin Moon, 
He died from a stroke in 1936, and he's buried at the Taishan Chinese Cemetery in Daly City, a three-minute drive west from the uh, Koi Palace in Milpitas, California. He was only four years younger than Jin Gay, and he lived the longest of all the brothers, making it to his mid-80s. The Chinese exclusion laws were still in force when he passed. You know, Jin Gay and Jin Moon were both, at one time in their life, unofficial mayors. In Jin Gay's case, mayor of Indianapolis Chinatown. And for Jin Moon, he had all the face and bona fides to be called the mayor of San Francisco Chinatown. You know, these Moy brothers, eh, it was always something with them. Jin Fui, other than outraging society by marrying outside of his race and thumbing his nose at the anti-miscegenation laws in force at the time, lived quite a nice, cushy, and successful life. But then he got caught up in a suspected smuggling operation trying to bring in Chinese laborers from Jamaica. And after fighting that case and later being acquitted, Jin Fui and Hattie Moy moved to Pittsburgh, where he started all over and opened up a medical practice. But then he got caught abusing his medical license and ran afoul of the Harrison Narcotics Act. Back then, and pretty much ever since, including into our day, there's always been a bit of an opiates epidemic. The Harrison Act of 1914 cracked down on doctors who were, well, basically acting as a convenient conduit to morphine and heroin. Addicts paid Jin Fui and other doctors like him a nice chunk of change to feed their habit. I'm sure that sounds familiar. Jin Fui was arrested in 1915 and spent the next five years arguing his case, taking it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1920. Jin Fui Moy versus the United States. Anyway, January 1921, Moy Jin Fui got thrown in the slammer for two years. Doing his time at the new federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he got out in 1922 and Dive cancer a couple of years later in 1924. He's buried in an unmarked grave at Uniondale Cemetery in Pittsburgh. The legal cases against Jin Fui Moy between 1916 and 1920 contributed to the shaping of early federal efforts to regulate narcotics and are still cited to this day. He was the only brother who never returned to China all those years. You see, he knew his story was so convoluted and shady, that he'd never stand up under scrutiny. So when he left Hoi San in 1875, he never went back. I mentioned Moi Jin Fui married a Caucasian woman, and later they adopted a baby girl, half Chinese, half African American. Josie was her name, Josephine Moy. She actually went on to become the first Chinese American film star. Around the time when Father Jin Fui was back in Pittsburgh, she ran off to chase her dreams and show business, and she created an entire persona, all fictional, but it did a lot to sell tickets, and she called herself Lady Tun May. She had a career mostly in vaudeville and later appeared in three movies for the Bettswood Film Company, one of the earliest pioneers of the industry, located in suburban Philadelphia, right on the Schuylkill River. She passed in 1985 at the ripe old age in 97, and she's remembered for her role back when Hollywood was still in its embryonic stages. Jin Fui, one more interesting tidbit, was that he was the first Chinese-American to file a patent with the U.S. Patent Office. Yeah, he invented a better nutcracker, although I doubt it did as well as the Ginsu knife. 
Scott Seligman wrote of the three Moy brothers, quote, True, the Moys and their fellow Chinese-Americans had arrived uninvited, as guests in somebody else's country, and as such, arguably had no legal basis on which to demand civil rights. But immigrants like my grandfather, who had come under similar circumstances from dozens of other countries, were afforded such liberties automatically and were free to become citizen, apart from Africans, who had, by and large, arrived involuntarily and under very different circumstances. Only the Chinese were singled out for shabby treatment based solely on bigotry by a nation that, for the most part, saw alarmingly little contradiction between such intolerance and its proud democratic and egalitarian ideals. End quote. Anyway, I'd like to personally recommend this book, Three Tough Chinamen. It's not only an interesting tale of the Brothers Moy, it's also a peek into the history behind the Chinese exclusion years. The author is, of course, Mr. Scott Seligman, and the book was published by the one and only Earnshaw Books, the respected and admired purveyor of fine books all about my favorite subject, China, and beyond as well. EarnshawBooks.com, if you'd like to peruse that fine catalog, some great stuff in there. Graham Earnshaw, proprietor, by the way. I'll have a link to Three Tough Chinamen in the show notes. Now, besides these sons of Hoi San, who I mentioned in this episode, there are, I'm guessing, tens of thousands of other untold stories of Chinese Americans who came from these five counties on the west side of the Pearl River Delta, and they're remembered by the families of these 19th and early 20th century pioneers who braved these imperfections of the United States. And these stories that they left behind are told at family gatherings and are passed down from generation to generation. Many have been recorded in journals and books. Mr. Bruce Kwan Jr., one of the more illustrious descendants of immigrant heroes from Hoisan, wrote a book that came out in 2020 called Bitter Roots that tells the tragic story of the patriarch of his family five generations ago, Lou Hing, who did so much for the people of the city of Oakland. Lou Hing's story was another tale of bravery and the guts to stand up to the unforgiving times that he lived in at the beginning of the 20th century. And like the brothers Moy, Lou Hing's life ended in disappointment and tragedy, beaten down by the racism of his day. I'll also have a link to Bruce's book in the show notes. I know lifelong Oakland resident and chronicler of the Chinese community there, William G. Wong, has a book coming out in 2022, I believe, that will tell the story of his father, who came to these shores from his village in Hoisan, and his family owned the longtime Oakland Chinatown fixture, the Great China Restaurant. So be looking for that. He also wrote the book Yellow Journalist, Dispatches from Asian America. And I'll have links to everything in the show notes. Don't worry. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to be that for this time. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off here in the city of Los Angeles in the state of confusion. Take care, mie amici, and once again... May I extend my deepest thanks for listening, and I cordially invite you to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.